Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here on this bleary post-Golden Globes morning with Richard Lawson. Hey, Richard. Hello. Uh, so we're going to get into the Golden Globes. We've got the special early episode to dive into it and uh, all of your texts via subtext, which we're so happy to have. Uh, and then in the back half, we're going to share Joanna's interview that she did with Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo. Okay, Richard, let's start um, by talking about the review you did of the show last night. Um, I, you publish it in record time, as is your want. Uh, you, you've been really good at summing things up. And uh, your headline was as succinct as any of these have ever been. It was bad. Yeah, That's all it, it took, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That headline was actually from Jeff Childs, who we had on the podcast last week. Um, yeah, the review went up quickly just for a peek behind the curtain. I started writing it pretty much 20 minutes, 15 minutes into the show Yeah. Um, after the monologue from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler had ended because like, I was like, I just don't see this changing much. And I, I think it did, as the night went on, get a little better. Like mm-hmm. the technical glitches were a little, it like smoothed out just a bit. But overall, the whole thing just felt so poorly done. And I and I say in, in the thing I wrote, like, I, I have no idea how, like, technically speaking, how hard it is to pull something like that off. So I don't begrudge like that. It's just like, that's just, uh, unfortunately, the, the, the conditions that this show had to exist in where everyone's on Zoom and it's two different stages in New York and L.A. and all that. I would say, though, that, like, the Emmys kind of did it. Uh, yeah earlier, you know, with, with kind of less lead time. So I'm not really sure what went wrong there, but I think the technical glitches would have been so much more forgivable had there not been this kind of huge set of clouds hanging over the HFPA and the Golden Globes as an award show, be it, you know, recent reporting about alleged, you know, kind of kickback or sort of payola stuff that they've been doing for years, allegedly, mm-hmm. or the fact that, you know, some really prominent um, movies made by and about black people were just kind of shut out of the nominations or maybe most glaringly, which was the thing most directly addressed last night that they don't have any black members in their, you know, 80 or 90 something uh, person group. Yeah. Yeah. And they had three people stand on stage and basically say, like, we are very sorry. We will do better, Um, which to me felt kind of like a, like a pressure release valve. Like they had to do the thing so that they could continue on. And like, you have Ava DuVernay, who's a you know prominent member of Times Up, and I think had been like tweeting or um, you know maybe making statements about the lack of diversity. Who introduced? Um, I can't remember which film she introduced. She introduced one of them, um, and kind of like going about its business. So it's like the HFPA had to like say that they would do better, and then everyone everything else could just be normal. Yeah, and and the, the do better thing was so quick, mm-hmm. and I also thought that like they said something like you know, like the rest of the industry, we have to and say, I don't think that you can kind of yoke yourself to that. Like, yes, absolutely. The broader film industry, television industry, many industries across this country are tasked with being more equitable and, you know, more diverse, etc. Um, but like the amorphous 
entertainment industry is one thing or many things. Whereas this is a 90 something group of people like, you know, yeah. this is like a small group of people with direct agency to change their membership and to be cognizant of that membership. And they haven't done it. And yeah. I think it, it shows a kind of a glaring sort of, I don't know what, like arrogance or something that like they kind of just thought that this was going to just skate by. And I think it's because they've been so secretive about their membership and, and all that. And it just took one, you know, LA times expose essentially to, to sort of shine light on a, on a big and glaring and lasting problem, you know? Um, yeah. And the, and the the thing that drove me crazy, and I promise we're going to talk about the winners and everything else at some point, yeah. but I, I do think the, the story of the HFPA is kind of the story of the Golden Globes. Um, but, you know, the L.A. Times story was so damning. It was so damning on so many different fronts that there was just this minute over the weekend where I was like, maybe this is the end of the Golden Globes. Like, this might be NBC cutting its contract and giving that slot to the SAG Awards or the Critics' Choice Awards. Like, there's no lack of big, glitzy award shows that people kind of feel the need to participate in because it's tradition. Like, the Golden Globes has had this slot sort of by default for decades because they got there first. Um, but then when they pivoted to focusing on the diversity thing, kind of rather than like the corruption and the, you know, the pay to play sense where like you pay enough money to promote your movie, you get a Golden Globe nomination. The diversity problem is almost the easiest to fix because it's just them bringing in new members, like, you know, bringing three new members to your 80 something word body that changes the, the dynamics a lot. So it feels like a feint almost like that's going to fix one of the problems at the Golden Globes, but not the biggest one, I don't think. Like, I don't think it's going to necessarily even improve prove the winners because it's still, you know, 90 odd people who probably shouldn't have this much decision power in the award season. Well, right. And a sentiment I saw kind of reiterated a few times online in the lead up to the show on Sunday was like saying that I think Mark Harris had said something to this effect, like saying like our organization is inherently and corrupt and has been for decades and black people should be a part of that is not really <laughs> like a an actual like a fixable kind of way to approach yeah. this you know yeah and uh you know i think the something i said in my review is like it, it they didn't address the question of why marginalized people would want to enter into this thing that is yeah. for, forever plagued by controversy it's like maybe this is just kind of a rotten thing that needs to be delegitimized you know and i think that you know that's rich of us to say, given how much we talk about the Golden Globes every year. But <laughs> yeah. I do think I went back and looked at past coverage, past reviews I've written and past reviews that other people have written from other outlets. Like there has been a kind of mounting thing over the recent years of like, what is this show for? Like we've all kind of gradually accepted that this doesn't really mean anything in terms of like Oscar stuff. It's, a, you know, the, it's a it, because it's such an isolated awards voting body that has no overlap with anything else. Like, yeah. Um, and I think that all of that kind of fomenting stuff really burst through the surface because we had these LA Times articles mm -hmm. uh, laying out in in clear terms stuff that maybe those of us on the outside had kind of suspected but didn't know concretely. Yeah. Well, and it, like the fact that they're continuing to have that spot while the SAG Awards are right there with like a whole bunch of actual working actors and Academy members voting as part of it and like a pretty good award show. Like it's a it's that's also a good show to watch. So why wouldn't you just be able to swap them? But they've had such a stranglehold and it, it just feels like they really cemented that status by being like, no, 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 we'll, we'll add black people to our ranks and then that'll fix everything and it's fine. And everyone seems kind of like eager to maintain the status quo and let that be perceived as the fix. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned the SAG Awards and um, I don't know what kind of deal they have with Turner Broadcasting, you know, because they're on TNT. And but like there you not only have a bigger voting, a much bigger voting body, 
you know, the nominations committee for SAG is small, but then everyone in the union votes for the yes. awards, I, I yeah. believe. And um, every active member. And SAG is, an, is a union that is plagued with its own problems. They recently had a bunch of controversy over their health care coverage, which seemed to kind of ice out older, more inactive members. So this is not it's not a perfect institution. But here here's an opportunity for a big broadcast network to kind of cast aside a problematic show that has like loomed disproportionately large for too many years and put in a show that's run by an, a labor union um, <laughs> and that still satisfies. You have TV and film at mm-hmm. the same time of the year. You So you get all those actors in one room and they maybe the, they could expand the acting categories at the SAGs to include supporting actors in television, which they don't currently do, just to get a few more celebs in the room. Sure. Um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that hard of a fix, except I don't know what the contract they have with the HFPA is. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder if like everyone's going to want to move on from this Golden Globes controversy or if th- this will continue to be the conversation. I mean, I do think the winners were good enough and surprising enough that like yeah. they're not going to get you know I think Daniel I think probably they even though Daniel Kaluuya's um, sound problem with his acceptance speech was like the actual nightmare of the like technical problems um, <laughs> yeah. I think him winning uh, early in the night and John Boyega too was probably gave everyone a sigh of relief to be like look 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 we, we can still give awards to black people despite our glaring lack of diversity in our membership um, but I also thought the awards were like, the winners were a little different like there was Andre Day is not nominated for SAG and she won uh, Best Actress in a Drama I think same thing with um, Jodie Foster for the Martinian. So there's like, like maybe they don't have to be the Oscar predictor anymore and then they get to be more fun and more weird and that takes some of the pressure off. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it can just be its own thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that it could be like a critics group, you know, which is small and, you know, the ones I'm part of are not as diverse as they should be, not by a, a wide margin, you know. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I am maybe casting some stones from inside my own glass house, but like. But, you know, the critics groups like New York Film Critics Circle and all that, they're always understood to kind of be weirdos and outliers and whatnot. And so if you wanted to kind of phase the Globes into that sort of territory, fine, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing about whether how, what, how the Golden Globes are in dialogue with the Oscars or are not in dialogue with them is that it is still an interesting platform for sort of, something I wrote about in my review is like it's sort of road testing Oscar acceptance speeches. You yeah. know, you, Academy voters get a taste of, oh, I'd like to see that speech again or some version mm-hmm, of that again. Mm-hmm. You know, it that, that, not, that doesn't always line up. I thought that Glenn Close winning for the wife at the Golden Globes, who gave a lovely speech, I was like, well, that was the final yeah. piece of the puzzle. And it wasn't. But I think that, you know, as, as like Jane Fonda's speech last night for the Cecil B. DeMille Award, Lifetime Achievement Award, showed is like, it's still a pretty watched broadcast. And regardless of who is kind of doling out the awards, like the talent themselves speaking to millions of people, like offers a lot of interesting opportunity for both serious stuff, for humor, for weirdness. Like, So there is value in the show of it, which yeah. I think is why it was so frustrating that even the show last night wasn't good, regardless of, of who runs the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as we talk about like the Oscar prognostication of it all, like Daniel Kaluuya, I, I feel like that win really helped cement my theory that he's going to win Best Supporting Actor, even though we couldn't hear his speech for a while. And he handled it well, which I think, you know, in terms of like exuding charm in a Zoom speech, like I think that's a pretty good way to do it is just like brush off a horrible technical glitch that's not your fault at all. Um, so, yeah, you got like little glimpses of people. Honestly, like Jodie Foster's speech was pretty great. And I, I want to pivot at some point because on subtext, um, those of you who have signed up to receive text from us, um, we'll give the information at the end of the show of how you can do that. A lot of you texted questions about uh, the actress uh, in a drama win for Andre Day and then the supporting actress win for Jodie Foster. Um, 
I'm just want to name check a few people. Kathy Beck said, best actress in a drama. What ha- what the heck happened there? Amy Ward said, should I just completely rework my Oscar predictions or is this a flute? Uh, and then there was one more. Uh, Nava Winkle said, actress and supporting actress is going to be chaos, isn't it? Do you feel like it's going to be chaos after these wins, Richard? Yeah, I'm looking through the subtext uh, messages as well. And and those that kind of nexus of, of Foster and Andrew Day seems to be the biggest, like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you see a couple of Rosamund Pikes thrown in there. Uh, Amy mm-hmm. wrote, you know, Rosamund Pike, wow. And so you start to wonder, like, okay, how does that change things? Because the way I'd seen it with the Oscars in Best Actress, at least there was this kind of fifth swing slot, you know, and who was going to get in there? Would it be, uh, maybe it will be Andrew Day now, you know, um, she gave yep. a lovely speech. It was like, I think there might be a sentiment of like, oh, maybe that, oh, that movie's on Hulu. I can go watch it. And and I reviewed that movie last week and, and I, I don't think the movie's great, but I think she's really interesting. In yeah, it. Like, she really is. You know, she's a pretty new actor um, and you can see some of that, like she's figuring it out, but like, at its core, there's something really interesting about that performance as Billie Holiday. So, so I yeah, think yeah, it's a know, real star is born kind of thing. Like you can't, yeah. and, and I think her speech was too. Like watching her give that speech, you're just like, I want to see more from her. I like maybe you've never heard of her or seen the movie before, but you would watch her and be intrigued. I think fully, and I think you know, Bakalova not winning was a really big, big surprise. They gave Borat two other awards, so I so it's not like they just didn't like the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, where she's the undeniable breakout star of that movie, that felt curious and. And then to shift over to supporting actress with uh, Jodie Foster winning, not to get myself into like potential hot water, but like I was like, wow, how hard did like STX lean on the HFPA? You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not implying that they did at all, but like I just, you know, it, you start to, I think that's another problem with the HFPA not addressing these controversies directly is that like then it kind of casts a lot into doubt. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Martania, like, so we had an interview with Tahar Rahim on this show. Like, I think he's great in the movie. I don't like, it's not a great movie, but I I think Jodie Foster is, is a respectable win. And her sitting on the couch with her wife reminded me that she got, I think it was the Cecil B. Mill Award, Award six or seven years ago and yeah. sort of came out in her speech. I remember it being kind of vague and like not as clear a declaration of coming out, but like now here she is like kissing her wife as she accepts her Golden Globe. So there was kind of a nice full circle aspect to that. And the thing about watching her win an award is I was like, I'd like to see Jodie Foster at the Oscars. Like, why not give her another nomination? It it, it felt kind of earned. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, I think that Raheem is really the standout of that film. Yeah. But but Foster is, you know, another kind of good, solid Jodie Foster performance. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of cool to see her living, you know, a sort of visible truth uh, on her Zoom call. But yeah, that, that 2013 speech was funny. I just was reminded last night of an Onion uh, piece about it a video thing afterward and the headline is Jodie Foster inspires teens to come out using vague rambling riddles, (laughs) 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 which I thought was pretty great. Um, She hasn't been Oscar nominated since Nell. So in some ways she's kind of like over, I mean, I I don't know that she's done a ton of work in the last 25 years that I would like clamor for a nomination for. She doesn't work a lot, which is her um, right. But this might be a, a nice opportunity to change that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think the other thing about the Mauritanian uh, is that it is about a really, you know, sort of urgent political matter in terms of these men who have been held at Guantanamo Bay without a trial, without charges, really, even for so many years. And, uh, you know, so it has that kind of weight to it. It is not, I don't think, a sort of cynical awards baiting movie. I think it very intentionally is like about something in in Mm -hmm. in in an urgent way. And I think that Foster is someone who's always 
tried to add, I think, a political dimension to stuff she makes. And and so, yeah, that would that would feel totally I, I don't think that that means that she has become a sort of new Oscar frontrunner. I, I, you know, not to denigrate her work, but it does. It did feel a little bit like Aaron Taylor Johnson winning for Nocturnal Animals or something. A like little a kind bit. of outlier thing. But what do we make of the Glenn Close then? Like, I, I feel like we had all kind of been like, well, it's Glenn Close's year. And I had the same thought when Diane Warren won in the original song category. Although Diane Warren, another famous person for, who's been nominated many times for an Oscar and never won. She's won a bunch of Golden Globes. So it's not breaking a streak there. Um, but I, I do wonder about that Glenn Close narrative and especially um, with the SAG Awards coming up uh, where Amanda Seyfried, who I would have thought would be her main competition, isn't nominated. So I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the obviously the SAGs will clarify stuff more or help to. Um you know, I think, but, but then again, weird stuff happens at the SAGs too, where Regina King wasn't nominated, you know, like, um, and then she went on to win an Oscar. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I I do think it was fun at least, even though the audio was bad or whatever, to see some of these speeches and to see how they would kind of go. Um, you know, obviously if Foster were to win an Oscar for the Mauritini and she wouldn't be on stage with her wife and their dog. <laughs> so it wouldn't have quite the same impact, nor would Andrew Day be surrounded by a group of friends and family who are all so excited and she's crying, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't quite, although maybe it will be, we don't know how the Oscars are going to work this year. Uh, sure. A normal Oscars wouldn't be, but I would, I would guess the Oscars are going to be more similar to that than not. I don't really know how you try to rally the effort to get everyone to be even close to in person. Um, although I, I saw one person uh, sent us on subtext a question. Uh, Amanda Iman asked why there weren't any mini show movie clusters together like Shit's Creek at the Emmys. And uh, I'm still holding out hope they'll do something like that and let all the casts watch the Oscars together. Yeah, or they'll just have a gifting suite that's just vaccination. <laughs> well, that's, at some point, they were setting up the bit where I think they were asking for like, uh, you know, asking real doctors for help. And I was like, they've gotten the swag that everyone wants. I was like, oh, my God, did they get vaccines? Did all the people get vaccines? <laughs> that would have like really caused the uh, class war. It would have kicked off right that minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, to go back to the um, Andre Day went in uh lead actress in a drama. We got another subtext question from Elizabeth Kosowski. Why didn't Promising Young Woman get any love? Is this foreshadowing for future awards? I thought it at least gets screenplay, which I think is a good question. Like, I don't know what I expected for the Globes to do for Promising Young Woman because who knows with them. But I I did think Carrie Mulligan was going to win. And I do wonder what's going to happen going forward with that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I'm I'm hesitant to like see too many tea leaves in the globes but i think maybe the movie would have benefited from having some people accepting awards last night you know just to kind of keep it in mind to keep its momentum going i would guess that uh, i don't know i still kind of feel like carrie mulligan is the is the front runner just based on like critics prizes and nominations and stuff like that. You know, I think Andrew Day not being nominated to SAGs is kind of a big thing, but again, Regina King wasn't and one supporting act, you know, so, but I, I, I do feel that it does seem more likely that it is a competition between first time nominees or winners more than it does. Carrie Mulligan is up against, Viola Davis and Frances McDormand, you know, I feel like. Yeah, although I do wonder about Frances McDormand for the SAGs, like if she goes and wins the SAG and like, I mean, Nomad Nomadland won um, director and picture at the Golden Globes, like the love for Nomadland does extend beyond less like nerdy critics. So, you know, Frances McDormand getting her third Oscar isn't, no one's gonna be mad about that, especially for how great she is in Nomadland. Yeah, yeah. And I think that if, if a group is sort of insular and uh, often out of touch as the HFPA can 
look at something like Nomad Land and, and deem it not just kind of artsy, but also, you know, TV awards worthy uh, or t- t- broadcast awards worthy, like um, so too can other voting groups, you know? Um, yeah. I think it has fully passed through that membrane of like, it's not just a critic's you know favorite like the writer was. This is something yeah, bigger yeah. and more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I hadn't I honestly put together that um, Trial of Chicago 7 is competing in original screenplay for the Oscars, which is mm. weird because it's like based on the transcripts of the trial. And also there was that document. I don't know. It is an original screenplay as is Promising Young Woman. I had thought that they were in separate categories. So um, that is a, uh, I don't know, that'll be an interesting Sorkin versus uh, Fennell. Did you know that her name is pronounced Emerald Fennell? No, that was that was good to learn. Um, it was good to have it reinforced in me last night that it's Anya Taylor Joy, which you know we oh, I've been told. Oh, wow. uh, also, something about Bryce Dallas Howard stepping up on stage because I think she's she presented director. She and Emerald Fennell look so much alike. Like mm-hmm. I I had never thought about it before, and they both have the they had these like, fantastic brightly colored hair. Um, so let's get them together somehow. I kind of lost it at Bryce Dallas Howard being introduced as a director of The Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of amazing. I mean, it has, it has it's multiple true. directors. <laughs> yeah. um, what other winners do we want to talk about? We got a lot of texts about Jason Sudeikis, uh, who looked, um, you know, it was like four in the morning in London and he was wearing a tie-dye hoodie. He definitely stood out. I haven't watched Ted Lasso yet, but I couldn't help but be happy for him. Um, anything else TV-wise that uh, stuck out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was interesting to see just in the, you know, it's funny how much just a few months can can make the difference. You know, Schitt's Creek running the table at the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Kind of the thought was, well, the, the same is going to repeat at the Globes, even though, again, it's a very different voting body. But like to watch a show like Ted Lasso creep up and eat a little bit of their lunch, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, because Ted Lasso just grew and grew and grew in esteem um, over the last six months in the way that Schitt's Creek did over six seasons, you know. Yes. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I mean, the, the winners for the crown, that was not terribly surprising. Yeah. Although I loved how like Josh O'Connor just looks so like overwhelmed to have gotten that award. And I was, I was very happy for him. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was sweet. And I, I think I, I like that, that him and Corin winning, it was like, here's the new class, you know, yeah. from this show. And it, Olivia Coleman looking like so beyond thrilled when they won. Uh, she seemed to be, be a great cheering section. And and I think, you know, the crown has such a huge mechanism behind it, but like that voters are still like invested in it. How many, se- you know, five seasons in or whatever it is like and still point, you know, finding the newer performances. Granted, they're playing Charles and Die, so it's not like they're <laughs> some, some obscure British royals or whatever. Um, so that was I, I also think speaking of obscure that like Mark Ruffalo kind of keeps showing up for I know this much is true. I a know. miniseries that I reviewed and I didn't think anyone watched. I know. I, I'm still not sure anybody watched it. And he, he, I feel like he keeps beating, like, really tough competition. Like, everyone seemed to be watching The Undoing. Like, I don't know about the Comey rule. Um, I don't know. I was I was surprised that he just kind of ran ran through that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but, like, that, I guess, is he at the, up at the SAGs? He must be, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, yeah, there we go. Um, and then, like, John Boyega winning was cool. And also, yeah. like, the loan recognition for this incredible five film anthology that Steve McQueen did. It, it, it it must feel kind of like a lot to be the one representative of this massive lauded undertaking. Yeah. Um, But it's nice that, that, that the, you know, small acts was said out loud at least once uh, last night. And there was a, uh, an Amazon ad that ran in the middle of it that was really heavily promoting small acts with all their content. So I mean, I think they must have known that it was just going to be hard to give awards to small acts. Like, the minute they decided not to break out um, Red, White, and Blue or um, 
Mangrove as films to compete yeah. in the Oscars. Like it was just kind of impossible. So I think I think that's just a, a nice nod to a project that is bigger than awards. They don't even need it. Um, I was looking again through subtext. We got a couple questions about Minari. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like Lee Isaac Chung had to have had the acceptance speech of the night because of his daughter, who was just so yeah. cute, like flawless hair hanging off of his neck, like a like true clingy toddler. Um, and he just gave such a great speech. And so, you know, someone was asking if the Oscars are going to do better by Minari. I think we all expect them to, especially because it's not going to be in the international feature category, uh, as it kind of wrongly is at the Globes. Um, but I think it, it's as far as as well as Minari could have done being nominated in just one category, I think they nailed it. Yeah, I, you know, the, the weirdness of that situation notwithstanding, like, it was really great to have the writer and director who's really mining personal experience for this really lovely film, mm-hmm. you know, having a big moment, accepting an award, cute kid in, in hand. I think that helped the movie a lot, which I'm really glad about. At this point, I'm kind of feeling like, given a, a spread of nine to ten Best Picture nominees, I would actually at this point be kind of surprised if it doesn't get in there. Oh, in Best uh, Picture? Oh, yeah. yeah I definitely yeah. would be too. Um, and I think that, like, I I don't know where it would be most favored to win. Maybe in screenplay, maybe even in supporting actress. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Stephen Yun, we should not count out. Like, I, But I, I really, you know, having gone through the sort of critics groups votes, you know, much earlier this year, like early January, I had started to worry because Minari really didn't show up where I, in the things I voted for, even though, you know, a lot of us were voting for it, but mm-hmm. it just didn't win anything. I was, I started to get nervous about that movie kind of falling through the cracks, forgetting, of course, that I just finally reviewed it last week because it's finally on demand for people to watch. I know, I know. Like people have had screeners, of course, but like the movie is now out there in, and part of conversation, you know, I've noticed like just anecdotally on Twitter, like, a lot of like big, like blue check Twitter accounts with lots of followers have been like tweeting about <laughs> it sort of unbidden. And it's like, okay, so there is a sort of, you know, populist sort of marketing campaign or, you know, organic marketing campaign happening for that movie. Um, because it is, despite a movie about like hardship, it, it does feel good. It's a warming movie mm-hmm. in, in not very warm times. Well, I think it's, you know, one of those movies that you you can hear about for a long time. And then once you finally see it, it will it will match those expectations, if not exceed it. Like it is such a a lovely thing to behold. And it kind of grabs you by the heartstrings. Um, and Judas and the Black Messiah, I think we talked about as like being kind of a late breaking movie that people would really be paying attention to. And uh, United States versus Billy Holiday, I think, to some extent as well. But Minari, like that's the one that you can like gather your pod to watch together and know that everyone's going to kind of come out of it feeling better, um, which is, I don't know, it's, that's a hard feeling to underestimate these days. Um, it's also going to be interesting. So the SAG Awards are not until April 4th, um, so over a month from now. Um, the Critics' Choice Awards are next week, so we'll have more awards to talk about. But at the SAGs, um, the uh, Motion Picture Ensemble nominees are The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey, Minari, One Night Miami, and Trial of the Chicago 7, like basically all of which had pretty muted nights at the Globe. So it's going to be totally different, and Minari could totally win that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that that would be a really nice, not, I don't, you know, not even like stepping stone to the Oscars, but that would just be a nice moment for that film, you know, like it was for Hidden Figures, you know, just Mm -hmm. a kind of a group of like actors being like, what a great ensemble, because Minari really is excellent in in terms of that ensemble acting in a way that like Trial of the Chicago 7 which I like, fine, and I think there's some good acting in it, but I think some of the most lauded performances <clears throat> are among the worst. I know you disagree with me, Katie, but um, you know, but Minari, I, I kind of find unimpeachable in that regard. Yeah, and you know, I think obviously, like there is 
because of Parasite, I mean, I, I wish that the, that it had come sooner, but like because of Parasite, there is a a, 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 a new focus and interest in, in Korean language film. And, and even though this is not a movie about Korea, it's it's about America. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of Korean spoken in it. There are a lot of Korean actors in it, be it a Korean American or from Korea. You know, so I, I think that it would that would further help uh, push Asian cinema into these awards conversations in a way that they really have not been. Uh, in a significant way ever, really. Yeah. All right. What else should be processed from the Globes? Um, Like I said, we've got the Critics' Choice Awards coming. I mean, it's interesting that we went through this whole night of awards. And if you ask me who's going to win Best Picture, like, I don't know. I really don't. Like, I guess Nomadland. But I still feel like it's it's very deeply up in the air for all the weird pandemic reasons that we know of. Um, I don't know. Do you feel like you got any certainty on anything as a result of this? Well, I would say it had already been a certainty. Um, you know, but I think as I guess DGA is still to be to come. Right. But like, I, I do think that Chloe Zhao, like that feels like that's going to happen. Yeah. And director. Yeah. She gave great speeches, even though she was like in the dark by herself, like yeah. with her cinematographer boyfriend. Like, I don't know, maybe they just didn't want to sacrifice the lighting in their house to, uh, <laughs> to yeah. light her up more brightly. Because I think that like even if, you know, a voter at the Academy didn't quite feel as up on Nomadland as a film as others like the direction is so interesting and also like the writer was so great and like it was pretty recently i just don't see any of the other directors in contention or coming close to matching her narrative this year yeah yeah because it's like you know like david fincher and aaron sorkin are kind of their own people but like i think even they would agree that like they don't want to step on the toes of like who would be the first woman of color to win a directing oscar and you know she's got eternals coming like she is so clearly like the person you want to put your chips on so who in the academy wouldn't want to be like oh yes we we were on her side before she had a huge billion dollar marvel movie um which is what i imagine will happen for eternals yeah um, and speaking of sure things, though, we should talk about the speech from Chadwick Boseman's widow, um, which was just really mm. like stunning. I like stopped dead in my tracks and just watched it. It was so emotional. She was so eloquent while also talking about how she like couldn't be as eloquent as he would have been. Um, you know, I don't think there's ever really been a doubt for us that the best actor Oscar is going to go to him. But um, good for her for kind of having the strength to to go through this process on his behalf. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it was it was moving and it was sad. And, and I think that a really poignant and necessary reminder that that's a very still like a fresh grief, you know, like, like that mm-hmm. this was not very long ago that this happened and, and it doesn't matter. Maybe it was, it could have been years ago and it doesn't matter. It's just that like these things tend to be processed by like media narratives and all that in a way that like, well, that happened and now we're going to give him these awards and then, well, good, we've capped off the Chadwick yeah. Boseman story. And it's like, no, that's not the, the reality yeah. for those that knew him and loved him at all. So that was an important reminder, I thought. And also I think the sense that I got, you know, online and and also, I guess, kind of compounded by that sketch or the, the bit with the little kids who yeah. all know him from Black Panther yeah. is that, like, this is, like, a serious legacy we're talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. And I felt that, too. But, like, as much as, you know, I'm thinking of the last posthumous Oscar winner, Keith Ledger, you know, that was a big deal and, like, his Joker was iconic. But he was also, like, a villain in that movie. And, you know, his... He, he didn't sort of represent as much as Chadwick Boseman did and, and yeah. does and Black Panther does. And and so I just think I think when it, when that happens, which I think will happen at the Oscars. Yeah, um, that's going to feel very significant. And I think that what last night showed with his wife's you know beautiful speech was it should feel significant because it yeah. is a big, sad 
thing that happened um, while also being able to celebrate a big, wonderful performance uh, in Ma Rainey. Yeah, I've honestly been thinking about James Dean a lot when thinking about Chadwick Boseman's legacy, like in terms of an actor who was like taken too soon and who just looms so large as like a pop culture figure. Like, obviously, those are two very different legacies. But I, I do think that like his stature is going to last for so long. Um, and I was ashamed that my four year old does not know who he, who he is. And all those kids had a school. So I guess I guess we have some work to do. But your kid uh, is really loyal to the D.C universe so yeah that's true yeah, yeah. No. well and yeah. uh he very literally does know who detective pikachu is so that's <laughs> that's my feeling as a parent um all right so we can wrap up the golden globes um any final thoughts anything that from the globes production wise that you wouldn't mind seeing replicated at the oscars like ditch the technical difficulties and stick with something I don't know. I mean, I think that so much of the tech stuff was a failure. Like I thought I, I, I liked the idea that they had of when they were cutting to commercial break, but arraying the next set of nominees up into their little Zoom rooms that like they were like, oh, you can hear their audio. We can hear them talking. But it just it sounded was, like it so painful, like it just sounded so awkward and they didn't know when they were on and all that stuff. So it was like when you're like on a meeting and like you're there early with like two or three other people who you don't know, you're just like, hey. We're in a Zoom room, huh? Yeah. Right. And there was something anthropologically interesting about getting brief snippets of big, famous, beautiful, rich people trying to just do Zoom small talk. <laughs> like that was <laughs> that was interesting. And like clearly, like especially with Sudeikis, like they kind of came into the broadcast and they were him and the other nominees clearly had been like joking around and like already had, it seemed like yeah. one inside joke when he won, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas, like, the um, the room with Bob Odenkirk and Al Pacino and um, Josh O'Connor, I think, like, you saw Bob Odenkirk trying to be like, hey, everybody, like, I'm here to bring us together. And you're like, ah, you're the one. You're, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're the, the group organizer. There, there was something kind of gonzo and interesting about that. And I guess in a weird way, you could make some analog between that and, like, the regular Golden Globes, which are people drunk in a room. Like, there was that kind of chaos that maybe that was the point. They were trying to replicate that. Um, yeah. But the Oscars, for all of its production, you know, sort of staleness or whatever. Like, I kind of do expect that to be more polished, more formal, you know, mm -hmm. a bit glitzier. And I really think that any sort of Zoom crosstalk and audio pop and smart, you know, like fizz, like I, I don't want any of that. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I think I think that that kind of DIY feeling really should not ideally enter into an Oscars production. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they can just throw a lot more money at it and have people like come to, you know, their own individual hotel rooms at the Beverly Hilton or something, you know, some way to like manage it a little bit more closely. Um, you know, as someone who's like the like the reigning queen of wanting to see inside people's houses, like I'm kind of overseeing inside people's houses. <laughs> I wouldn't mind them just like tamping it down a little bit. Especially because I got the sneaking suspicion a lot of them were in hotel suites. Yeah, you know, definitely. It's like, I don't think that's your house because I don't think you wanted people to see your house, and I don't blame no, them. I don't blame them either. But it just it didn't it didn't it didn't give me the the kind of thrill that I thought you know like because I was expecting to be like, see like some weird memorabilia in the background, and there was everything was pretty clean. Yeah, uh, I, I you can find at VF.com right now. I interviewed Daisy Edgar Jones for a kind of getting ready diary that we did with her, and she's working on a film in Vancouver now, so she's in a, a rental apartment. But a lot of the like production team from the movie she's working on came over to help her get ready and also to like stage her apartment so that it looked nice to be on uh, Zoom. And I was like, you know what? That's that seems like a good compromise. Like, fine, help get a professional to help make your house look camera ready. Um, and she looked great, so it all worked out. 
Okay, let's wrap up the show and then pivot to the back half of the episode where we're going to have Joanna's interview with Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo, um, which is kind of an unbeatable pair. Uh, And you might have noticed uh, Spike Lee's children were the Golden Globes ambassadors this year, looking completely phenomenal. So uh, there is a there's a small Golden Globes tie in, but I think they talk about a lot of broader things related to the Five Bloods. So let's listen to that now. So we are thrilled, of course, to be joined by Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo. Delroy, um, I wanted to kick it over to you immediately and give you the floor right away. Okay. I asked uh, to be given the floor because we just finished, we, Spike, myself, Clark Peters, and Terrence Blanchard have just finished a, a session for another outlet. And I was really moved to be um, speaking about the process of making this film, the process of collaborating together. And invariably what happens is the question of Chadwick comes up and what our experience was working with Chadwick. And um, there is the aspect of appreciating people, having an enhanced appreciation for people when they are gone. And I don't want to make that mistake with my brother Spike Lee here. And so at the risk of coming across as obsequious, I was I was accused of being obsequious one time when I was talking to Spike. So at the risk of, of, of being <laughs> obsequious, I would say I would say this that I have had uh, an enhanced appreciation for Spike Lee's particular genius and how he brings his particular genius to bear in the stories that he tells and the manner in which he approaches his storytelling. Now, my saying that about Spike as a collaborator, somebody who's worked with him four times, does not mean that we have not had disagreements. Point is, we resolve those disagreements in service of the story. And so I'm just officially saying to Spike, God bless you, man. God bless you. God bless you, too. While you are telling your stories through the lens of the African-American experience, I will say unequivocally that what you are doing is telling and sharing stories with the world. I'm done now. (laughs) Well, well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, uh, so show's over, right? Yeah, that's it. We did it. I think we did it. We're done. <laughs> I wanted to ask you there. You, this is a very obviously unusual year for watching films in general. And there's so many layers of it that might enhance our appreciation of this film specifically. As you say, the Chadwick conversation, the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm wondering, what is your understanding of the way in which that has made this film specifically a film for this year that we just lived through. Here's the thing. You can't choose when you're born. And the film was scheduled to come out. And I not had the, even though sometimes I'm known as Negro Damas, I did not predict COVID-19 and things fell into place. We're very lucky. There are several films that are meant to come out which had been pushed almost a year because they weren't with a a streamer. And God bless Netflix. We just, uh, we are the world premiere 
the five blood supposed to be in con out of competition where I would be president of the con jury. Con didn't help, didn't happen, but and after that, we were going to have a small theatrical run. But all that stuff went out the window when the world changed. You know, I don't want to be coy, but we had a, we had a captive audience. You know, what else? People weren't going out. But something you said at the beginning of it all, Spike, was that you were wondering if this year, when there is, as you say, a captive audience, um, if that would change the awards conversation around Netflix, which has been a little a little fraught in the past. Do you feel like it changed the way in which awards bodies think about Netflix? They're getting a lot of men. You got Mank. You got Trial Chicago 7. You know, they're there. Ma Rainey. Ma Rainey, produced by Denzel Washington. Directed by the, the great George C. Wolf. So people really had no choice. I mean, if they wanted to see movies, you know, you were check you you were watching films on Netflix. So we'll see what happens. Uh Joanna, to mm-hmm. to just um respond to your question, I may be naive, but I also in the final analysis want to believe that streaming or no streaming, theatrical release or no theatrical release that the work stands on the strength and the merits of the work. Ah. No matter what venue, um, the work stands on its strengths. And I think that that is still true, even in this fraught year. Yeah. I want to I believe that. Speaking of the film Strengths, you're up for actually one of my favorite awards of any season, which is the Ensemble Acting Award for the SAG Awards. I think every awards body should have an ensemble award. I think it's so important. What do you think it is about this particular group of actors and performers uh, that made for such a strong ensemble on this film? The bonding off screen and on screen. And that's a relatively simple thing to say, I'm saying that obviously as somebody who was inside of that bonding, who was a part of that bonding, but it was extraordinary. I do not expect necessarily to have that on other in other work situations. What I can tell you from somebody who was inside of the dynamic, what I can tell you is that we, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Norm Lewis, Jonathan Majors, Chadwick Boseman, when he came, we bonded in a very particular way. And what was beautiful about that bonding, it was completely unspoken. It was nothing that any of us decided that we wanted to do. We just connected. And that connection was really, really rich, prodigious. And that energy, which existed off screen, was what we brought together as an ensemble on screen, I believe. You know, it's, it's just love. That's just love. But hold up, and there's something else. And, and, and that, other, that other component or another component is as director Spike's talent in bringing us together in the first place because he cast it. And, you know, it, it, it said that, I don't know, casting is... 80% of the success of a given project, 90%, I'm not sure. But um, he brought us together and then plopped us down in the middle of circumstances that were going <laughs> to enhance. I feel compelled to say that it did not mean there were not disagreements. There were. But 
the disagreements were all always resolved in service of the story and in service of the process. On many levels, that is Spike's skill in bringing us together in the first place and then presenting us, putting us down inside a set of circumstances where we could thrive. You know, one of the things that Terrence Blanchard said, the composer, brilliant composer, Terrence Blanchard, <laughs> he said, Spike trusts me. And I can attest in my experience that trust is like manna from heaven. It's gold. It's not a given necessarily, even when, even when directors may admire or appreciate your talent, but to trust you to make the right choices in service of the material, to trust that your instincts are going to, in some instances, enhance what you may not have thought about, and then to have the skill level and the wisdom to embrace what the actor is bringing and include it in the storytelling. That is, um, that's not a given. I'm not going to say it's rare. It's been rare in my experience, but it's, it's a very, it's a special talent, a special gift. And Spike has that. Thank you. When thinking about films about, about racial justice that we're seeing more uh, these days, I feel like you can put them into two categories. There's the kind that is supposed to make white people like me feel comfortable about how far we've come. And there's the kind that is meant to underline how far we have yet to go. And I'm wondering, you know, when you think about the films that came out this year that deal with racial justice, and there are many great films on that subject, where do you think we are? Is Hollywood moving towards a better place in this conversation? Well, I hope so. But look, there's been, I've been fooled too often in the past where, you know, you think it's coming, you know, we get some Academy Award nominations, some notice. And articles, not just so, but uh, journals are saying how Hollywood has discovered black folks and, and the new wave is coming. Then there's a nine year drought. So I'm reserve my uh, I'm on a wait and see mode. Mm -hmm. I've seen this too long. I mean, right now I'm happy. There's so many films, much more than has been ever been. I think if you don't count the black exploitation era where you're making I maybe mean, they were churning those out. So, you know, they could make you more money on it. But uh, I'm very happy about more films, but as I said before, I'm in a wait and see mode. Yeah, I want to I offer something in this moment, and that is filmmakers who happen to be Black. I, I don't think, I, I, I could be wrong, and, you, and you'd have to talk to different filmmakers. I don't think anybody necessarily sets out actually to be thought-provoking, per se. I think that storytellers are trying to make the most authentic story that they know how to make. That's what I think. And I think storytellers creating from their place of authenticity, when you juxtapose that or when you connect that with America's racial history, that then creates the dynamic for the kinds of reactions and responses that you reference. But I, I think that what storytellers are doing is telling stories. I just, I, I get frustrated. I mean, personally, I get frustrated when I see films that are supposed to make me as a, a person ignore the realities of what's going on and make me comfortable. And I prefer a lot of the offering that we have this year, I guess I would say. You weren't alive when Driver's Daisy was around. <laughs> 
I was. I was. I'm older than you think. I'm older than you think. <laughs> you mentioned Jonathan Majors. We we had him on the show. I'm a huge Jonathan Majors fan. We had him on the show a couple uh, weeks ago. And um, I'm curious, you know, he, he says that he calls you Delroy dad, just outside of the context of the film. Um, yeah. And I, I'm curious, when you look at someone like Jonathan Majors sort of popping off in this industry, how is the industry he's going into? I mean, I, I, I heard Spike say he's in a wait and see mode and that is fair, but h- how do you see like Jonathan's experience as any different or is it just the same as the ones you experienced at the beginning of your careers? No, it's not the same. I didn't, I didn't work anywhere near as much as Jonathan is working now. Jonathan, you know, is seemingly everywhere and he's, he's, he seems to be involved in really rich projects, the projects that have, a lot of meat on the bones in terms of the stories that are being told. So I, can, I you know, I, I don't make that comparison, but in terms of the industry that he's entering, I'm, a, I'm with Spike. I'm in a wait and see mode in terms of how that evolves, not only for him personally as a, as a majorly, no pun intended, talented individual, mm-hmm. um, how that evolves for him personally, but how it involves for him vis-a-vis the industry in, in general. And you know what, Joanna? The fact that Jonathan mentioned that he, he refers to me as dad, and he does, or pops, is indicative of that bond I spoke about that we had, certainly Jonathan and I, but all of us, this familial bond that we created. And that's what's engendered, you know, him referring to me as pops or dad. I don't know if we did it, we, did, we just finished working together again yeah. on another film. Same thing. He was referring me as pops or dad in that experience. I'm interested, you know, this film is so much about fatherhood, obviously, and you you two are dads. And I'm I'm interested in if you have any thoughts on on how being dads yourself has changed your approach to your art and, and this kind of storytelling. Mm, well, th- I mean, there, there was uh, one of the things that I really loved about the script that was brought to me was the father-son dynamics and, and having a grown son, you know, there, there, there's, there's things that you don't necessarily have with, with your, your daughter. And then, you know, sons are trying to, I'm not speaking about my son, Jim in general, just in sons want to try to have their own space in the world, whether your father's famous or not. At the same time, sons want their father's love. So you had that, that crazy, dynamic and just Martin Luther King III was my classmate at Morehouse and I used to just see him around campus and we had some class together just like he's named after Martin Luther he's not only is that his father he's named after so and I knew that was tough Joe DiMaggio Jr. Frank Sinatra Jr. (laughs) Dean Martin Jr. you know like you know like and that, I'm not trying to say that's an Italian-American thing, but those are things that when you have a famous father, you know, it, 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 it could go both ways. Um, yeah, whether your dad is famous or not, those dynamics of, of your son making his own way and making his own space in the world. And when you have a child, it gets real immediately. <laughs> when you have a son, that's a different reality. When you have an African-American man-child, that's an 
added reality. So I would say that my antenna are much more sharply honed in terms of the world that I am in and how I conduct myself in that world. And therefore, and I'm, of course, mistakes are made, but looking at beginning with negotiating how I conduct myself in the world, that translates over into, as a creative person, what stories do I want to be a part of telling? And I, I'll say that one of the single most important things for me is no matter what storytelling I'm a part of, to the extent that my son wants me to be proud of him as his dad, I want my son to be proud of me. I want my son to be proud of me. And on some level, that informs my journey creatively. And as a matter of fact, Spike, when, yeah. when, when, you, when you and I were talking about um, Bloods and we were discussing the Trumpian aspect, mm-hmm. I said to you, oh, man, you know, I don't want my son to see me do this, Spike. Can, can we make, I very specifically remember saying that, you know, can we make him just a conservative without being Trumpian? That was one of the first thoughts that came out here. I don't want my son to see me doing this. But you know what? <laughs> Thank God he did. <laughs> hey, you know, look, you just had you just had to work it out. That's all. I had to work it through. I didn't give you no timetable. No, you I didn't. Just said, I said, you know, let me know. You know, that was it. You know, you worked it out. I worked it out and we worked it out. Is there anything at all? Uh, I want to ask you a Trump question. Why not? Uh, is there anything at oh, all? Oh, wait, wait. Age, Agent Orange. Agent Orange, right, right. Uh, <laughs> the former, the former uh, Agent Orange. Um, is oh, he's there... still Agent Orange. He's just <laughs> it, the former president, but he's still Agent Orange. Eternally, eternally. I don't know if, if there is an answer to this question, but is there anything that you both feel Paul was right about? when it came to Trump? Mm. Okay, this is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to use the term right or wrong. Okay. I am going to use the term authentic, authenticity, because the dynamics that have caused me, Paul, to cast that vote in 2016 are very real and very authentic and very genuine in terms of my lived experience. And I believe that that is a very, very critical component or they are critical components to understand. It was critical for me to understand it in terms of playing Paul and, 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 and by extension to understand why certain people could cast that vote, uh, why certain people of color could cast that vote. And I, and I and make that did. distinction. Hold up. I make that distinction because I believe very strongly that I can just talk about Paul. Paul's reasons for casting that vote in 2016 are completely different than the individuals, for example, who stormed the Capitol. That ethos, that way of thinking that caused them to cast the vote for, for, for Trump and continue to support him is markedly different than why Paul cast that vote. And I would say jumping ahead to 2020, I want to believe that Paul, that my Paul would understand that in 2020 because essentially he got chumped. 
<laughs> Essentially, he got majorly chumped. He got majorly taken for a ride. And I want to believe that Paul would understand that in 2020 and understand that he made a mistake. I mean, there were black folks did vote for Agent Orange, particularly black males. But I think it had to do with being feeling disenfranchised, feeling left right. out and needing to believe when this cat comes along and says, I can make it better for y'all. Give me this shot. I can make it better. They needed to believe that. Yeah, I mean, he said, he said, I remember, he said, what do you have to lose? What have the Democrats dumped you? Wait, vote for me. What do you have to lose? That's right. And, and, and people needed to believe that. Anybody who knew that individual from New York was never in a trillion years taking him seriously as a, as a candidate. A uh, question for you, Spike, since this is an award season podcast that we do, we're recording this a couple of days before the Golden Globes. It will come out after the Golden Globes. And I'm just curious if you can talk at all about like about how your your kids are preparing for their role as ambassadors. Oh, they're, they're, they were very excited when, when they got the gig and uh, getting their clothes together. They're getting Gucci's making their clothes. So. They're excited. I'm, and my wife and I, Tanya, we're excited for them. Well, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, take care. Thank you, Joanna. God bless. Take care now. That does it for this week's show. Uh, as we said, you can find our Golden Globes coverage on VanityFair.com, including Richard's review, the Daisy Edgar Jones photo diary, the all the looks from the red carpet, which I've got to say, we, we ragged on some of the production values of the show, but the fashion was great. And a lot of them took really beautiful photo shoots so you could see the fashion. So well done, everybody, on that. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. You can text us by going to joinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text us at 213-513-7035. We are so happy to hear from you on subtext. We're going to respond to your Golden Globes questions. If we didn't get to them already on the show, keep them coming. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna is at Joe Wrote This and Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best theory as to why Jodie Foster keeps shouting out Aaron Rodgers goes to Katie Rich. He very literally does know who Detective Pikachu is. 